On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and movie DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Welcome once again to another episode of On Screen and Beyond. Brian with you once again. We are entering episode six. And before we get into our interview with Martin Cove, and you will most likely know Martin Cove, uh, one of the biggest things he's been in is uh, Karate Kid. He played the sensei, John John Kreese. And uh, he talks about uh, how things went on in that movie and how he... You know, got into the role and all those sort of things. And uh, it's a very interesting uh, interview. And he talks about uh, different types of movies he's been in and characters. Uh, he hasn't just been the bad guy. Of course, he was in Rambo and uh, Rambo 2. And um, a lot of different things that went on. So uh, that interview is coming up in a few minutes. But before we get into remakes, I uh, just have to remind you that uh, it's uh, almost Oscar time. And coming up next month, we're going to have an interview with a uh, former uh, nominee for an Oscar, and uh, I just won't let you in on who it is yet, but uh, that'll be coming up, and uh, we'll have an Oscar question on our survey and everything. But right now, going into our survey, uh, I'm going to give you the results of how things went. The survey uh, we had online at uh, onscreenandbeyond.com was, how many sequels do you think they should have of a movie before they just, you know, Give it a rest. You know, we've had enough. Well, 43% of you said you love sequels. Keep them coming. And uh, so that was the biggest majority there. Uh, 29% would uh, like to see one sequel made and then, you know, leave it alone. Uh, 2% said, uh, can't even read my writing here, uh, stop after three. And then we had uh, about 1% who said uh, stop after two. And then 1% said, you know, eh, don't even make them. Just make the movie, move along, go to another one. So that uh, was the results of the survey that was up there. And the new survey is, uh, I wasn't going to sort of get into this thing, but uh, the writer strike continues on. So um, I kind of want to get everybody's feeling on how they feel about this strike that's going on for the writers. The question is, do you support the writer's strike? Yes, no, or you have no opinion. All right, so uh, if you'd like to vote on that and give your opinion, just go to onscreenandbeyond.com and uh, go down on the first page, scroll all the way down to the bottom, and that's where the poll is. You can click on you know which one, yes, no, or no opinion, and uh, see what uh, the people feel about that. Uh, we, of course, hear what the actors and everybody else feels about it, but I uh, want to know what the uh, general audience feels about it. All right, we're going to be moving into Remake Madness coming up right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. Well, the writers may still be on strike, but Hollywood keeps looking at remakes to make big bucks. And uh, in the works, it looks like there's a remake of, now are you ready for this, Conan the Barbarian. In the 80s, it made a uh, star out of Arnold Schwarzenegger and put him into the spotlight. Uh, stay tuned as this develops. We'll keep you informed about what's going on. It's not a definite yet. It's in the works. But who knows? The next Conan Barbarian could be President of the United States. You never know. Uh, let's see. Clash of the Titans will be filming this year. It's a remake of the 1981 film. There's no release date yet, but uh, we'll let you know when it uh, moves into the spotlight. And uh, here's one of those ones that sort of can go either way. Is it a remake? What is it? 
Well, it's the A-Team. A-Team movie is in the works, and it's a remaking of the 80s TV show. It's uh, been rumored on and off for a long time now, and it looks like uh, they're trying to move it into the forefront, but uh, it could be bounced back. Who knows? Uh, It's something to keep an eye on, though. And uh, there's also rumors that, uh, not rumors, it's it's, it's a remake that Tim Burton is going to be making. It's a remake of Disney's Alice in Wonderland, set for release in 2010. All right, and one thing to remember, of course, with all the remakes and the sequels and even the upcoming movies we've mentioned, that uh, it is, everything is in production, and uh, or in in the works or in the thinking stages, and it could be dropped. They might not make them. They might make them. You never know what's going to happen with them. But uh, it's just to get this. This show just gives you an idea of what's coming down the pike, and uh, a lot of them, most of them, do come your way. But some could be dropped, and uh, we'll let you know if they do. All right, coming up next, we're going to have up and coming movies right here on On Screen and Beyond. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Upcoming movies. We've got a wide range of stuff here. We got animation. We got horror. We got uh, horror comedy. We got uh, uh, musicals. We got everything on this one. All right. M. Night Shyamalan, uh, new movie, The Happening, starring Mark Wahlberg, is coming out on June 13th of this year. And uh, that one is uh, a lot of people looking at that one, thinking, you know, it's going to be another great movie. And uh, we'll see. And then on June 27th, uh, a movie that uh, a lot of people are looking forward to because it's a Pixar movie. And Pixar usually is doing a great job with all the movies they do. This one is Wall-E. All right. And uh, it's coming out in, uh, you know, theaters later on, uh, on, like I said, on June 27th. And uh, it's uh, kind of a cute thing. So if you get a chance to go on the Internet, you can take a peek at the trailers that are out there. See, get an idea of what's going on with that one. If you're, you're listening on iTunes, you can look down in the corner there, and you can see a little image of the poster, and uh, that'll give you an idea of what the animation looks like. It's a little bit different than uh, the stuff they've been doing in the past, uh, but uh, that's what Pixar does. They uh, everything changes as they develop movies and everything, so uh, it's kind of interesting. Let's see. In July, look for Meryl Streep. And Pierce Brosnan, former James Bond, singing their hearts out in Mamma Mia, the movie version of the Broadway play. And uh, that's that's probably going to be a pretty good movie. And also, here's one, a screwball comedy set in the 1920s. It's called Leatherhead, starring George Clooney and Renee Zellweger. And it hits the big screen on April 4th. And then, My Name is Bruce, stars B-cult star Bruce Campbell as a pompous B-movie actor, and he's hired by a town to fight real monsters. But he thinks it's an acting job, until a monster kills his best friend, and uh, then things continue from there. Uh, There's no release date yet, and there's always a possibility that that one may go direct to video. So if you're a Bruce Campbell fan, you might want to keep an eye out for that one. And uh, Will Smith, he's still strong right now on uh, I Am Legend. 
but um, it looks like he's going to be stepping into some different shoes coming up in July. It looks like he's going to be playing a drunken Playboy superhero in a movie called Hancock. It's coming your way, I said, in July. And it also features Justin Bateman and uh, Charlize Theron. So uh, that's uh, something different for Will Smith. And that's about it for upcoming movies. Sequel City is coming your way next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Sequels are always sort of, you know, like like remakes. You kind of wonder sometimes, why in the world are they redoing this, or why are they making a sequel to it? It's just one of those things that, you know, sometimes you say, oh, this is going to be pretty good. Then there's other times where you think, why in the world? How could they want to? Why would they want to? Um, but uh, first one in the sequels, it looks like Biodome is going to have a sequel. All right? Some of you out there are saying, What's Biodome? <laughs> well, <laughs> Polly Shore and uh, Stephen Baldwin made a movie a while back in the, uh, I think it was in the 80s, and it was called Biodome. Well, they're going to make Biodome 2, or possibly make it. And uh, this time, Stephen Baldwin, uh, he's in the talks to reprise his role. No word yet on Polly Shore. Uh, who knows what's going to go on with that one. Uh, this one most likely will happen. The next one I'm going to talk about is Night at the Museum 2. All right, with Ben Stiller, it's coming your way in May. So that's you know that's pretty much a definite. And uh, in the category of possibly, maybe, could be, might be, want to be, uh, look for a possible sequel to Ghostbusters Three. Now the reason it's sort of a maybe, possibly, want to be, could be, might be type thing is uh, because there there is no you know no script yet or anything like that. But it seems that in an interview, Dan Aykroyd and um, uh, Hudson and Remus and, and those guys, uh, they said they would like to do it again. They'd like to sort of get together and uh, make the movie, um, but uh, there's nothing definite yet, but that's something that uh, they are interested in, and if you get at least three of the four stars interested in it, well, there's probably a good chance that uh, they could make it. And uh, Ghostbusters 3, uh, you know, it, it would probably do a, a good amount of money. That's what they're going to look for anyways. Um and then uh, Sex and the City isn't even out yet until this summer, but guess what? They're already talking about making a sequel. <laughs> it's you know they're that sure that it's going to be a hit. And uh, then after the success of I Am Legend, Warner Brothers has secured the rights to do a sequel. That's right. It's not even out of theaters yet, and they are you know getting the rights to do it now this doesn't mean it's going to happen it's just that Warner Brothers has secured the rights to do it you don't know what's going to happen but uh, you know if it's going to make boatloads of money they'll probably do it and uh, that's uh, they have the option and that could happen and I would say most likely it will but of course well, I'm not going to give anything away but you know it, it could be a prequel they could make if they want to do the same stars and everything but uh, you know it, they could continue on with the story, I guess, uh, if they wanted to. There's a lot of different directions they could go with that, but um, that's uh, a possibility. And it's time now for TV DVDs, coming up next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Well, there's always a, never an end to what's coming out on DVD for TV shows. Uh, there's just so much out there that they can come out with. There's a, there's a few I'd like to see come out, but there's no 
chance, or I shouldn't say there's no chance, but the, you know they weren't uh, huge hits, so they sort of hold back on those. But it looks like if you're a fan of uh, the 60s series Honey West, starring Anne Francis, that's coming out on DVD. Season 1, uh, which was the only season, but it was a very popular private detective series in the 60s. Uh, there's no release date yet, but that is coming your way, so uh, fans of Honey West, look out for that. And then another one that's uh, been rumored for a while. It's been on and off. It was promised in 2005, then it was promised in 2006, then it was promised in 2007. Who knows, maybe 2008 it'll come our way. Uh, those of you that like Pee Wee Herman's Pee Wee's Playhouse, uh, all 45 episodes are heading for a possible special edition release, and it may be coming out uh, fairly soon, maybe, but they're not sure. It seems like uh, uh, Paul Rubens is the one that's uh, holding that up. He's... Uh, wants to get uh, things just right I guess so uh, that's something to look forward to if you're looking uh, for Pee Wee's Playhouse and then if you're a fan of uh, the 50s show for if you're looking for some 50s wholesome family TV Father Knows Best season one starring Robert Young and Jane Wyatt is coming out on DVD April 1st it's a four DVD set all 26 episodes of season one will be coming your way and for the Western Adventure people, there's a Western Adventure coming your way as DVD release of Zane Grey Theater Season 1 Rides Into Town. Now, this show was hosted by Dick Powell and had a star-studded guest star lineup including Cloris Leachman, Forrest Kelly, Ida Lupino, Jack Palance, Eddie Albert, Walter Brennan, Robert Vaughn, James Garner, Jack Lemon. Lloyd Bridges, Ernest Borgnine, David Jansen, and many, many more. Um, so there's a lot of star power in this show. A lot of people in there that uh, were on the way up. Uh, there's no release date yet, but that's coming your way very shortly. And now on to movies coming out on DVD. No Reservations with Catherine Zeta-Jones is uh, going to be released on February 12th. Martian Child with John Cusack hit stores on February 12th. February 19th, watch for Rendition with Reese Witherspoon, Meryl Streep, and Alan Arkin to hit video stores. And you can catch the 2008 Rose Bowl game on DVD on February 26th. Classic movie buffs, you can look forward to 12 Angry Men 50th Anniversary. That's the 1957 classic that's uh, starring Henry Fonda. It comes out on March 4th. All right. So uh, those are things to look for. Remakes, sequels, upcoming movies, TV coming out on DVD, and movies on DVD. Coming up next, our interview with Martin Cove, right here on On Screen and Beyond. My guest today is Martin Cove, and he's, of course, known as the evil sensei in The Karate Kid, all the Karate Kid movies, and, of course, many, many more TV shows and movies, but uh, welcome. Thank you. How did you start your acting career? How did it all begin? Well, I mean, you know, I guess I always knew I wanted to be an actor. Um, back in the fourth grade, I remember doing, i from New York originally, and uh, we grew up in Brooklyn, and uh, I remember at PS 161 
in Crown Heights doing a play called The Golden Goose, having a really good time. It was the fourth grade. And I just always knew I wanted to cultivate that, you know, and just did lots of plays every year in school and eventually went to uh, to college, went to a variety of schools. And I remember even when I wasn't at, I, I was in college at the time, Queensboro Community College didn't have a very good drama department. So I would audition for other plays at universities I was not in attendance of, like Hofstra, a variety of schools that had great drama departments. And sometimes I would get the parts and they wouldn't find out that I wasn't in attendance and sometimes they did find out and they boot me out. But uh, I guess I always knew I you know, was comfortable being on stage and eventually worked at Lincoln Center and Off-Broadway and La Mama, La Mama Theater Group and then eventually went to California. What was your first paid acting position there? The first, actually, I was fired from the first job that it really wasn't pay. I mean, it was um, Asbury Park, New Jersey, and it was called Asbury Playhouse. And a friend of mine who later went on to be a very prominent agent named Dick Fox at the William Morris Agency, he was an actor there with me. And I remember my parents came to visit me in Asbury Playhouse, and it was my first apprentice job, so it was not really a paid job. But... uh, I remember being, I came a few minutes late because they were coming to visit. I was a few minutes late to the rehearsal, and I was fired. And uh, it was my first job, and I was fired from my first job. And I said, oh, God. Must have been devastating. It was devastating. (laughs) And uh, I remember then years later, and I'm beating myself up and and still thinking about that. And I remember reading about Steve McQueen being fired from Hatful of Rain on Broadway. And I said, well, God. And Steve McQueen was my idol at the time, and I said, you know, Steve McQueen got fired from his, one of his first jobs, and I guess it's okay if I got fired, you know. <laughs> and um, so that was a quite interesting job, but, you know, it was an apprentice, and it was almost like summer stock, but it wasn't, because it was it was in the fall, and it was a legitimate job, and we would scrape ceilings and do a lot of things that weren't quite theatrical, but you learned a lot about working in the business. Hmm. Now... When I was doing research last night, late last night, after we got got back from eating, um, I noticed you were the Irish Spring, yeah, commercial guy. In the uh, in the late seventies, uh, I just got this spot, and the Irish Spring was uh, soap. And I remember these funny lines. I mean, the fellow would smell his armpit, and and um, he would say, someone would say to him, "You're a strong man, John," and I'd smell my armpit, and I go, "I'm much stronger than I care to be." You know, and it was just kind of fun. And it was very lucrative at the time because I had just just moved to California. And I remember getting all these residual checks in the mail, which were really great because the, the spot was a very popular. The yeah, spots oh, yeah. were very popular. Yeah, I can remember you those. Know, yeah. They really were fun. They don't do them anymore. I, I haven't seen an Irish Spring spot in a long time. I, I don't even know if they make this open anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't noticed. But, yeah. but uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting to see that yeah, was the, that was you. <laughs> yeah, that was me. Now, of course, The Karate Kid, that was a, a big series of movies, actually, and you've been in all three. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have to learn karate? Because, I mean, you were very convincing as far as the karate and the martial arts that you were doing. Well, we at the time, I had a foundation of, of kendo. Uh, we had been working um, with um, my Shion, uh, Shion Takaboda, who is now um, Soke, is... He works out of Glendale, and he's the president of the American Karate Association. 
and he's been in many movies, Killer Elite, and a variety of films. And uh, we were working with him on preparation for a movie called uh, Lion of Ireland, which was about Brian Baru, the first king of Ireland. So we were working with a lot of katanas and, and bows and, and a variety of weapons, you know, f in preparation for this movie. And then, we, ultimately, I got, had gotten the Karate Kid film, and the foundation was quite similar uh, t to what John Kreese had to know. And we worked three hours with Pat Johnson, who was a stunt coordinator, who was brilliant, who used to run with Chuck Norris in the 60s and 70s in the tournament scene. And he was, you know, he did Batman and Ninja Turtles and all. And Pat Johnson was highly responsible for the attitude of this character, John Kreese. Robert came and wrote him as the Marine instructor. He had a sensei very much like that in the Marines, which is devastating, you know, because to have a guy like John Kreese really in your life is <laughs> yeah. somewhat bizarre. And... Uh, it was very interesting because uh, he experienced a man like John Kreese in his life. And Pat helped me with the attitude. And although I didn't do a lot of action in the films, the attitude is what, you know, saved the character and made him so real. And the writing made him even more perfect, you know, because Robert wrote such a wonderful script. So it was very fulfilling to be part of that. And uh, John Alveson was terrific. He, anytime I wanted to smile in the role, he would say, no, Marty, we don't want this Martin Cove twinkle. He says, we want just cold, ice death, you know. And, and you portrayed and that. I was there, you know, I guess, you know. But um, that's how that evolved, you know. Because, I mean, you know, every time you, you see that movie, it's like, boy, that's a mean guy. <laughs> well, we worked three hours a day. Pat Morita and Ralph worked three hours a day. The boys in Cobra Kai worked three hours a day, and I worked three hours a day. And it didn't matter how much action you had, you worked to be convincing with the attitude, the mercy is for the weak attitude, you know. Very, very, um, you know, uh, offensive. The way I, my character interpreted uh, the, the art of karate is it was a offensive sport rather than a defensive art. Mm -hmm. You know, Pat Manrita, you know, professed it as a defensive art. And I, you know, worked in the opposite direction. And the backstory I created for my character was just that he was a Marine. Well, basically, he was a student who worked uh, and was a champion in school and college and all, then went to, the, to Vietnam and was not allowed to win, where so many of our boys were not really allowed to win, and came back after the war and just decided he would never lose again that under any circumstances, his dojo, his students, would win no matter what. He never liked that feeling, being able to challenge and not having it come into fruition. So, ultimately, Allah, we created John Kreese, the man who couldn't afford to lose ever. You know. So do you have a lot of input when, when you do your characters and things like that? Do, do they allow you to to expand it yourself? Yeah, you, you try to. You know, you know, When I worked, when I did Wired Up with Kevin Costner, Larry Kasdan, you know, Certainly, I mean, I was very familiar with the Old West. It's my favorite genre. But, you know, I remember him when I walked into this scene where Kevin Costner throws his cue ball in my throat and it's a historical character named Ed Ross. And I came in with a smile and calling out Wyatt Earp in this second scene of the movie uh, that I was in. And, and he said to me, when you do Cagney and Lacey, uh, because I, was do I just finished the series, and, and he said... Uh, do those guys come in robbing a liquor store or whatever? Do they ever come in smiling? And I said, no, they're pretty serious, you know. It's only in the movies that the bad guys smile or the killers smile, you know. 
He said, no, everybody's pretty serious. They you know, want to get the money of the register and leave. And the same with the bank. No one sits there and smiles, you know, in the, in the movies they do. So he says, I want you to come in. Don't smile. Don't do that Hollywood gunfighter. Just come in and be business is business. And it was very interesting. It's a small note, but it was very interesting to have that come from Larry. And he was very right, very much right, because the character was an historical character that the wider does beat and feels his power and takes my rig, my gun, and wears it through the rest of the movie and gets a sense of his power as a gunfighter, as a professional, as a lawman. And if I came in smiling and being cute, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. You know, and so it's quite interesting. You do have a lot of input in your characters uh, across the board. You do as much research as you can. Often, I think in filmmaking, research and development of your and rehearsal of your character is often more exciting than the event of acting because you get a chance to interview people if you're playing a mercenary, you're playing a policeman or whomever, a priest. Um, I remember being going in the Philippines and working with um, Sidney Fury in a movie called Going Back, and I played a priest. And I went to different missions in, the, in Manila. I had three days, <clears throat> and I went to different, worked with different priests and chatted with them about God and all that. You know, I, I had never played a priest, and I'm Jewish, you know, so... It was quite interesting. So the research and getting into the roles is half the payoff. Yeah. Well, I know you, you've, um, you know, you've done so many different diverse roles. But the, the when I was doing the research, I saw that you had been played a priest, and I was thinking, wow, that's a mean priest. Because <laughs> I mean, everything reverts in my head, anyways, back to that sensei, and it's like. You know, wow, that must have been one mean priest. But, but you know, I, well, he was a, you know, he actually was the other end of the spectrum. He was in support. It was a movie called Going Back, and it was about these characters going back to Vietnam, twenty years later, and reliving an experience. But he's actually killed by the Viet Cong, and taking care of children. He's just amassing these or children in an orphanage and taking care of them, and then he's killed. Mm -hmm. So. And Sidney Fury I had worked with before in a movie called Top of the World, and he was just one. I mean, Sidney Fury, Lady Sings the Blues, The Appaloosa with Brando, you know, and um, Sidney calls you and says, I really want you to come do this. I had worked with him before. Um, and it, it was quite interesting, and I was glad that it wasn't a man with an edge. Yeah. It was the other end of the spectrum. Right, yeah, I'm sure playing different different ones all the time is, is a lot. Yeah. Any one you prefer? Do you prefer to be the... The bad guy or the good guy or, or I just the in-between guy? I actually prefer, I like being, you know, the, the hero. I mean, everybody, every bad guy wants to carry, every actor that plays a lot of characters with an edge always want to play vulnerable, and the vulnerable leading men like to play the bad guys. You know, but I remember doing uh, White Light, um, which a, pic a picture with Al Waxman, who was a Lieutenant Samuels on Cagney and Lacey, and he directed me in that, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a character who dies in the first 10 minutes of the movie and he's a policeman and he comes back by a vision while he's on the operating table of a woman who gives him unconditional love and affection and he spends the rest of the movie trying to find out if she's a reality or a vision and another one called Project Shadow Chaser I did in London with Joss Ackland and unfortunately both these movies in America Project Shadow Chaser was a poor man's diehard but it was the Bruce Willis part mm -hmm. and unfortunately both these movies went you know, directly to video at the time. And so, you know, a lot of pictures I've done where it hasn't been the John Kreese, you know, dark Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, they've gone 
straight to video or DVD, so they've not had the commercial success of a Karate Kid or a Rambo or Wyatt Earp, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so you were people in, in Rambo, you know, and in Rambo yeah. too, you know, we just followed up Karate Kid one with another big grossing picture. But those characters were bad guys. Yeah, they were just, you know, they were just characters with a huge edge and very dark and and um, it would have been nice to follow up something with a little more of a soft element to it, you know. Just so be it with the business, ever, you know. Ever done a musical or anything like that? <laughs> no, not in a while. I mean, I, 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 I've done. Strangely enough, the the um, the Karate Kid uh, music video that just came out, which is quite interesting, called "Sweep the Leg, uh, Johnny." They wrote a song about this famous line I said in the movie, "Sweep the Leg." Right. Yeah. And it's by a group called No More Kings, and um, Billy Zapka, who played Johnny Lawrence, my henchman in the movies, in the Karate Kid One. He literally uh, directed this and organized it and produced it, and it's wonderful. It's a group called Astonished Entertainment, and they have a rock and roll group called um, No More Kings, and it's a seven-minute... You can actually see it on, uh, if you go to, I think, www.sweeptheleg.com. It's a great song. They wrote it, and they created a seven-minute short, which Ralph Macho's in, and I'm in, and it was an incredible screening in Los Angeles, and it's absolutely brilliant hmm. you know and it's also out on an album but it's a song about what we're doing 20 years later after the movie i'm an outlaw biker and he's uh you know he's sort of stuck watching the movie every single day you know living in a trailer but it's, it's wonderful stuff and it's a musical you know it's it's a musical um but i'd love to you know i can talk a song like rex harrison used to do yeah but, but i'm not really a very good singer yeah. you know <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What attracted you to that part of, of the sensei? Well, it, we really, you know, never even liked the title. And uh, to me, it was just another heavy. And my audition was, you know, it was quite bizarre because they gave me the script and said I had a week and then I had a day. And I was so angry. My wife told me that morning, go use this anger and go in there and berate the director and berate the producer and just because the audition scene was mercies for the week here and on the streets where I'm parading up and down the dojo. So I went in there and I berated the, you know, I, I said nasty things to the director and, you know, and I just went right into the reading. I, you know, I just called him names and all that just to get my energy going and the viciousness rising to the surface and then went right into mercies for the week here and on the streets and he loved it and sent me to Jerry Weintraub and Jerry loved it, you know. And it was quite an interesting project because to me it was just another heavy, but no one knew it was going to become this uh, immortal, you know, classic, mm -hmm. this, this, this morality play that works even now. You know, you look at, w look at it with a five-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 25-year-old, the movie holds up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you can go anywhere in the world and it's still, you know, there's notoriety because that film is still a classic in any language. Does it bother you? 
and you're not typecast, I shouldn't say you're typecast, but, but that people remember you a lot for that role. Uh, you know, I know some people don't like to be, you know, say, oh, that was, you know, Christopher, uh, no, Christopher. Oh, that was Christopher Mr. Coffee instead of Joe DiMaggio. That was Mr. Coffee. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it doesn't. You know, I mean, Joe DiMaggio had wonderful qualities going for him, and, and an extremely talented man. So to be remembered for Mr. Coffee, but then you know, there's just so much that uh, I used to conduct a little survey um, when someone would come up for an autograph and all. I would often ask, "Do you watch Caddy and Lacey?" This is the time of Karate Kid One before the other two came out. And I would just ask, do you watch Cagney and Lacey or do you, rem you know, remember me from Karate Kid? And I was just curious on the play of a hit TV series, how powerful it was and how powerful the cinema was in comparison. Mm -hmm. And most of the time it was Karate Kid. And the kids, of course, were Karate Kid because, you know, Cagney and Lacey was a 10 o'clock show and right. they couldn't watch it. But it was really interesting because Victor is Becky and Cagney and Lacey was a character who was a chauvinist. You know, and certainly John Kreese was a chauvinist. But Martin Cove, as the actor, always believed a woman could do everything a man could do. And yet, I, and so that was the, so the, the parallel to the, um, the, the Canyon Lacey character. And yet, nowhere in the world am I as cruel as John Kreese was in the Karate Kid role. You know, so you get a chance to do, you know, I mean, you would think people like Charlie Bronson. I remember meeting Charlie Bronson. He was a big Canyon Lacey fan. And Charlie Bronson, being thinking of Charles Bronson and from The Great Escape to, you know, to Dirty Dozen to whatever, you know, um, I, I, you know, he wasn't in The Dirty Dozen, Charlie Bronson. But, you know, you think of The Great Escape, Magnificent Seven is what I meant. And you think about how wonderful an actor he was and always playing tough guys, yet he loved that show. So, you know, just because you do these parts and you ease into them it doesn't mean you're those characters which most people think you are yeah you know they, oh god there's martin cove <laughs> then i talk to him you know or some little kid in malibu would punch me and said you hurt ralph really you know, in, they, in they a supermarket <laughs> all the time <laughs> and and you know you don't you don't take it seriously and and uh, these are the people you know i just came from a wonderful autograph show i do like one or two of these things a year it was the chiller theater and it was in parsippany new jersey and um it mostly is horror and fantasy. Yet the power of this movie is enormous, oh, yeah. enormous. You know, it's. Uh, I did a movie years ago called Last House on the Left, and yep. just you know, I never liked it because it was about killing, chainsaw, yes. very violent. And yep. It was Wes Craven's first movie, yep. and um, you know, I never liked it. And in fact, I was asked to do the David Hess role, the Krug. You know, and I passed on it, and, and David, I knew David, I brought him in, and Wes liked him, and he ended up doing the music and doing a terrific job as Krug. But um, I could never, you know, you would think that show would be geared towards those movies, fantasy and horror, yet Karate Kid was enormously popular. Kids would come with T-shirts and jackets with my face on it, and I didn't know that, you know, that I, I don't buy those things, you know, really on eBay, you know, I, I have them. Yeah. And I, I give away my gi and all that to charity. So I never think of it as being, in every genre or in every autograph show, such an important element. Yeah. This film, Karate Kid 1, 2, and 3, because their morality plays. Yeah. I understand you were, you were injured on the set? Your, your hand, you injured? Oh, that, yeah. Well, that, you know, the, um, there was a scene, the, the action scene that I had with um, Pat Morita that we had practiced for a long time, which was the end of Karate Kid 2, end of Karate Kid 1, 
which ultimately became the beginning of a Karate Kid 2, and I punch through the glass. Well, what, what was interesting was I would lunge punch and hit the glass over and over and over again, and it never broke. And there's a charge in the bottom of the glass of the window itself of the van, and it never exploded the charge. And the charge is supposed to explode about an inch before you reach the window, so it shatters and appears you go through it. It never did, and then ultimately the special effects man said, well, well, it'll work this time, don't worry about it. And I didn't quite buy it, you know, so I didn't, I didn't lunge, I just punched. And sure enough, the glass didn't break, you know, with gunpowder. It broke with my fist, and shards of glass were sticking out of my hand. Oh, so going in that window is real. When you look at Karate Kid 2, I really, it's the broken part, and it's broken shards in my hand. But when I pull out of there, it's the next day where we shot me coming out. Because I, I looked at John, and I was, you know, we did a couple of more takes after they bandaged me up, and an hour later they put new skin on my knuckles, and I went for a couple of more, but it still never shattered. So we just used the first one, and we wrapped. And the next day we finished the scene. Hmm. Now, with all the movies, uh, and TV shows that you, I mean, you've done 80 different, probably even more than that now, uh, different uh, things. Do you prefer TV Movies. Well, the interesting thing about television is it's wonderful security. You know, doing one, and you can develop your character a lot. Um, I don't think I did enough of that when I did Cagney Lacey. I did, I guess I did like four TV series. And Hard Time on Planet Earth, which was a series I did right after Cagney and Lacey. Um, it's interesting that if the Bible is really strong and your showrunner and your producer, executive producers are really strong, I mean, I watched 24 religiously, and uh, one of the um, executive producers is also director of you know, pretty much every other show, John Kassar. And John worked with me on with Hulk Hogan and Carl Weathers and Shannon Tweed on these two uh, movies for TNT called The Shadow Warriors, um, produced by a good friend of mine, Doug Schwartz. And, and here was, you know, um, television, but it was television. It, the movies of the week are fun. They're like shooting films. Episodic is a little faster. You don't get the luxury of, of, of a multitude of takes and to develop your character because the schedule is much faster. So it's, it's a greater rapidity on television because you have eight days, seven days to do it. You know, when I directed Silk Stockings, it was six days. So you're really, you know, and I loved those shows, but they were shot in San Diego and they had six days to do them. Most shows on Cagney Lacey, we, we had eight. And I'm sure, you know, 24 is a little bit more. It's just a matter of time to develop the character, and you're moving a lot faster. Uh, if it's long-form television, you usually have a little more time to play with the, with the character. And in a movie, you, you have more time, period, to, to work and rehearse and talk and develop, you know, the role. So I, it's just different genres for me. You know, they're just different experiences, you know, different experiences. I, uh, something about going to work every week is fantastic. And there's something about working in long-form television, which is very exciting, because it's usually historical. And uh, in a movie, you have a greater period of time to work with a director and your coach. And So it's three different experiences, and I love them all. And I love getting on the theater, doing some plays. I mean, to me, it's also another the other end of the spectrum as well, immediate audience grat gratification. Right, yeah doing a comedy, which I love comedy, um, and I love getting on stage and doing a comedy. So they're all exciting for me.
Now, I know when you arrived, you mentioned about your beard that you're growing, and you mentioned that uh, it was for a new movie. Can, is that something you can talk talk about? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. Um, there's a terrific project that Sony Entertainment is doing um, with my friend Doug Schwartz producing and Jim Burkett is uh, directing and writing. And he was a Garth, um, Gore Verbinski's uh, protege in all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And it's something that everybody, um, I'm not quite sure I'm doing it yet, but it's something that um, everybody will like when it comes out. It's called Booty, and it's about female pirates. And they, they commandeer a pirate ship. And they sail across the seas, and it's all about female pirates. And I have just seen the Pirate Queen on Broadway, and it was a story of Grace O'Malley. But pirate, female pirates are something not exploited very much in our cinematic realm, and it's quite interesting. And, you know, um, historically, the pirate world, you know, I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean has been such a, an advantage for people to see or to be introduced to that pirate world because we haven't had a successful pirate movie in a long time. Yeah. Robert Shaw did one, and, and there was you know, a couple. In the 30s and 40s, we, we had, you know, you had uh, Captain Blood, and you had um, the other one that he did. It's Captain Blood and... Uh, God, I've forgotten. But it was just um, it was just a, a wonderful period of time. And of we stopped making them. Swashbuckling yeah. was brilliant. You know, and they were historical. You learned about... Um, you learned about um, the history of the of the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. You know, so now now it'll be terrific to have that, and it's a series that'll be shot in Puerto Rico. And um, I got this, you know, growth, and I go and meet the people, and we'll see what happens. Mm. You know? Now you've got, I noticed there were three or four different movies or TV productions that that are just finishing up or in progress of, of uh, well there, there's, there's about four movies I've finished that are quite interesting one is called Chinaman's Chance Chinaman's Chance is a western about the persecution of Chinese on the railroad in 1870s and another one called Beyond the Ring which is a um, I play uh, an uncle it's a very soft family movie about a young lady who um, is my, plays my niece she needs an operation and I play her uncle and um, it's a life-threatening operation, so it's a sort of a vulnerable, soft character, which is nice. And I play him with a cane, and it's really charming. And it's an independent film. And another one is called Messages with Jeff Fahey that we just did in London, and that'll come out shortly. It's a thriller, and it was a fun character. It was a, it was a policeman who writes two books on serial killing, and he's an authority on serial killers, and they bring him over to London to work with the London police to solve a crime. And he's this bravado character wearing big belt buckles and python cowboy boots and fish out of water, you know. And um, it was a lot of fun, just an enormous amount of fun. And then the picture I just finished in Guadalajara called The Dead Sleep Easy. And The Dead Sleep Easy is the story of this Canadian wrestler named Vampiro. And he goes down to Mexico and he becomes this legendary character like Hulk Hogan. And it's quite interesting. And I get these directors like my ideas and... And so I got to play this character whose avocation is to be another Sam Peckinpah. And he lives for the Wild Bunch. And I, I brought the Wild Bunch down, and in this gorgeous hotel, the Hilton in Guadalajara, in this wonderful restaurant, we screened the Wild Bunch so all these people could see the essence of what this character that I wanted to sort of, you know, have as a subplot for, um, for, um, the way they wrote it. it was a subplot to the, the paralleling the character they wrote but 
the guy wants to be a director, and he walks, just films everything. And um, but he's a you know he's he's a criminal. But the bottom line is, it was incredible showing the Wild Bunch at dinner hour in this gorgeous restaurant, only in Mexico. You know, could you have this kind of thing? And everybody was into it. So I think the movie's going to be very, very good. It's a group. Um, Rob Menzies is the producer, and um, Lee DeMarco is the director, and that group out of Ottawa. So there's, a, and I'm doing another movie with them, and then I'm going to direct as well, a little western with um, supernatural overtones to it. So there's a lot of things, you know. There's another movie called Bare Knuckles that I'm supposed to begin. Um, uh, it's sort of like Million Dollar Baby, and I'm the Eastwood character, but there's a love affair in it. So there's a lot of different things going on, you know. And, and sound uh, very interesting. They're interesting. Yeah. They're all different, you know. They're yeah. all different. And right, you're not doing just one. Th- I mean, you're <laughs> you're you're no, bouncing around. I'm not toting a gun, walking around. I mean, yeah. I wish they were westerns because the biggest problem is. I'm trying to rejuvenate that genre. Yeah. So my kids... Sounds like you enjoy that. Oh, I love it. I love yeah. I love history, but I love that genre, you know. It's been a while for the, you know, for that to, the genre to come back. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything goes in cycles, and it seems like, you know, it's due. It, yeah, it's, it's very due, you know, you know. And Jesse James will come out, and... But um, that genre is, needs to come back, yeah, oh, you yeah, know. Yeah. It's yeah. the American heritage for our kids. It takes their mind off of just special effects, just, just horror... It's all white hat, black hats, but it needs to come back with a twist. It needs to come back with a new angle. And if we need, as I'm doing, introducing the supernatural to the genre to just pull the kids in, mm-hmm. then we need to do that. Yeah. Because that genre from 1920 to 1967, one of every three movies ever made in that period was a Western. Yeah. So it's an overexposed situation, and you need to come at it at a different angle. Yeah, I'd like to see some more of those come out because they're always fun. You yeah, know, the fun movies. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I know. I, I, I mean, there's other questions I could ask you, but I know you know you've you've got plans, and <laughs> but I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And, uh, well, this film festival is, you know, I mean, um, Derek is terrific. You're terrific. I think it's a lovely, you know, the the, the California International Film Festival. And what year is this of the ninth year? Ninth year. Yeah. Um, the film I saw last night was terrific. Forfeit. It yeah. was just terrific. And and you know, twenty four being a big hit of mine, and then having Greg there, you know, who played Charles Logan on the mm-hmm. show, President Logan. But I mean, you know, it's very. I think it's a very compassionate festival where everybody is really concerned with good work and concerned with getting it out there. And. Um, my hats are off to you and and Derek for just supporting because it's a lot easier I think now for people to make films you don't need millions of dollars and with the with the invention of HD and you know yeah. being able to develop and edit through you know just using this yeah, computer just, right just here just using your computer yeah we get some really good quality material out there and I know my son is a student who wants to be a film editor director and I think now the film festival uh, route has a lot more importance to the filmmaker because they can get almost like being on stage instant gratification because they don't have to wait two years to finish the movie and edit it on 35 millimeter and all that and they don't have to wait for years to get a 10 million dollar 20 million dollar budget to right. make it or even a 3 million dollar budget yeah you can still function with under a million dollars to make a movie mm-hmm. and um, do it well and take your time and not have it read like some rushed little action exploitation picture, you know? Yeah. And the graphics that you can use now with Final Pro and all that is just, you know, 
so much. It's just magnificent. And even, you know, your average 15-year-old, and my son goes to Beverly Hills High, and he wants to be a filmmaker, and and he makes little laptop movies. And I, th I think certainly now the opportunity for filmmakers will be as vast yeah. based on technology, you know, yeah. and yeah. based on all the fact that you have these little festivals. It allows people to show their work and get gratification and feedback. Right, yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And once again, I'd like to thank Martin Cove for taking the time to talk to us and uh, giving us all that uh, insight into his life and in his uh, acting career and everything. Uh, it's very interesting to hear how things go with these actors. And um, that just about does it for another episode of On Screen and Beyond, Episode 6. And coming up... In the uh, next episode, episode 7, which will be coming out shortly, uh, we will be having a continuation of actually the uh, Martin Cove interview as uh, Martin comes in and David Hess joins him. And they, uh, they're they two good friends. They appeared in the movie Last House on the Left, as uh, he was talking about earlier. And we interviewed David Hess earlier in one of our earlier episodes. And um, they actually got in the studio together and uh, did another interview with me. So uh, that will be coming up in the next episode of On Screen and Beyond. And if you get a chance, I hope you'll go over to onscreenandbeyond.com and take our uh, poll survey and uh, express your feelings. Uh, do you support the writer's strike? Yes, no, or no opinion? And uh, we'll give you the results of that in a couple of episodes as we move into the Oscar time, where we do that episode. And uh, that'll all be coming your way in future episodes. But uh, right now, that uh, is ending episode six. So until the next time, this is Brian Zimmerich saying, take care. Uh -huh.